0: On Wednesday morning I left home at 5am, having got up a little earlier than that, to catch the early flight down south to Heathrow for meetings of the Council of Wycliffe Marble Translators on which I serve. Uh, the weather was perfectly good in Scotland, but there was heavy fog in the south of England. And so we sat in the runway, in the plane for over an hour, waiting for final clearance. The man sitting next to me said, this does not bode well if you're returning back this evening. you would be just as well sitting in Heathrow and coming straight back. And sure enough, when I returned that evening, the airport lounge was absolutely crammed with people, all waiting for delayed flights to take off. All the signs, I hate it when they do this, all the signs just said, wait in lounge. And so you go to the desk and say, what's happening? And they say, we don't know, wait in lounge. I was on the last flight, the 8.15 British Midland flight. They said the six forty one was leaving at 10 past 10. So I said, when is the 8.15 one leaving? And the lady said, I have no idea. I said, is it going at all? She said, I have no idea. Wait in the lounge. So I waited in the lounge. So what do you do in these circumstances when you're waiting in the lounge? Not knowing how long you've got. Well, you'd be glad to know I... Took out my Bible and my notebook and uh, prepared one of my many Christmas talks. At 8.15, the time when the flight was due to take off, I again went to the desk because the the kind lady had said, and there's one down here so she's smiling at me, Uh, it wasn't her but uh, Christine, uh, the kind lady said, just keep checking. So at 8.15, the time when it should have gone, I said, any news on BD 64? And she said, I'm sorry, there's no news, we don't know what's happening. So I went back and sat there in the lounge. Ten minutes later, a voice said, This is perfectly true. Final call for flight BD64 to Edinburgh. Will all passengers now embark? Proceed through gate 8B. Thankfully, I was sitting there, so I proceeded through. I resisted the urge to ask if this was the final call, what had happened to all the other calls before the final call. Uh, but I was just grateful to finally get on the plane and return from foggy England to the clear skies of Scotland. Now, I will resist the temptation to develop this metaphor, (laughs) but as I sat in the plane at 30,000 feet or whatever it is, and I began to think about this passage in 1 Corinthians 16 that we're studying this evening, it, it did strike me that my experience in the airport was a useful metaphor Uh, of the Christian's experience in life. You see, our experience, surely, as Christians, is that we are living in the present, in the light of the future. In, In our last study, if you were here last week, at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, we learned of this fantastic mystery that God had revealed to the Apostle Paul, his messenger. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. And this will happen in a moment, at any moment. But no one knows when. We sit, as it were, in the departure lounge, waiting either for our flight to be called, or for the return of the King. Not the final instalment of the film, but the final instalment of human history. So, if we live in this tension, if we belong to Christ, if you're a Christian this evening, and are looking forward, not just to Christmas, it's coming in the past, but looking forward to the final return, this future coming, what do you do in the meantime? How do we spend our time? What should we do while we're waiting? Now, 1 Corinthians 15 ends with a general appeal. After saying all this, the Apostle Paul says, therefore, because this is going to happen, this fantastic event at the end of history, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. And when we come, therefore, to the final chapter of this letter, this, as it were, earths it in practice. okay, that's the general thing, you know, give yourself to the work of the Lord. Well, okay, how does it actually happen? What do you actually do? So 1 Corinthians 16 is about putting it into practice. And although our situation in the 21st century is very different from that in the 1st century, there are some important principles which we can apply in our lives. And so let's conclude our series, Keeping First Things First. I just chose a simple title, and uh, one of the problems of these series is you plan them a year ahead, and then you think, why did I choose that title, having studied it? But anyway, we'll stick with future plans. We're going to read the final chapter. If you have a Bible, well, you need a Bible. There are plenty of Bibles around. Make sure you've got one. And turn to page 1157, if you have a few Bible, 1 Corinthians 16. after all the great things in chapter 15, I wonder what you'd think if the next thing that was talked about was the collection. Now about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money, keeping with his income saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I'll give you letters of introduction to all the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they'll accompany me. After I go through Macedonia, I'll come to you, for I'll be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I'll stay with you a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stand at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. If Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should refuse to accept him. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers." now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go with you, to go with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to, do, to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong, do everything in love. You know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, and they've devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you, brothers, to submit to such as these and to everyone who joins in the work and labours at it. I was glad when Stephanas, Fortunatus and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you for they refresh my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. So does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Come, O Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen God's word. Uh, Some people find this chapter a bit of an anticlimax. After the heights of chapter 15, one writer comments, after the grandeur of chapter 15, anything is bound to be something of an anticlimax. The contents of this chapter are essentially practical and therefore prosaic. However, there's another way of looking at them. Another writer, one of our former pastors in Charlotte Chapel, and Redpath, wrote a little book, I think it's out of print now, called The Royal Route to Heaven, which is based, it was a commentary really, on 1 Corinthians. And this is what he says about this chapter. What are coming down to earth? Well, of course. Because a Christian is a man whose heart is in heaven, but whose feet are on the ground. Every glimpse of future glory is given to the child of God in order to encourage him to present-day growth in consecration and responsibility. I was encouraged this week hear from quite a few of you who found last week's message encouraging and inspiring. Uh, There would be serious questions about any Christian who did not, despite the inadequacies of the preacher. However, the real test this week is, what impact has that had on your life this week? As we thought about the great events at the end of time, and that we're all going to get new bodies. (laughs) Wonderful thought, isn't it? What impact did it have on you this week? The real test of our future hope is how it affects us in our present living. In particular, in this chapter, how you use your money, how you determine your priorities, and, hardest of all, how you relate to other Christians. These are the practical and certainly not prosaic issues dealt with in this chapter. So let's look at them together, practical issues for Christians down to earth. First of all then, if you look at the passage in front of you, using our resources, verses 1 to 4. You'll notice again, if you've been in the series, whenever Paul says, now about, that is code for saying, this is something you wrote to me about, and I'm going to answer your question. There have been five of these issues already. There's another one later in the chapter we'll come to in a moment. The issue Paul is talking about is what he calls the collection for God's people. This was a project that Paul had initiated among the Gentile churches he'd planted in the Mediterranean world to raise money for poor Christians in Jerusalem and Judea. We know from history there'd been a devastating famine in the whole province of Judea in AD 46 and almost 10 years on the famine is still being felt in its effects. And it seemed as though the Christians living there were in particular need. It may well have been because they were Christians, they'd been exempted or they'd been excluded from Jewish relief funds because of their faith in Christ. And Paul was therefore keen to bring aid to them. The, the literal word here is not God's people, it's saints, the word used for Christians in the New Testament. He wants to bring help to the saints in Judea from Gentile Christians in the Roman provinces of the Mediterranean because, he says, you owe everything your Jewish brothers and sisters. He writes about the same subject in the book of Romans that we studied a couple of years ago. It's what he says in Romans 15:27. If the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. He saw this gift as a kind of expression of Christian love, practical expression. And he also recognised that these Jewish Christians, there were tensions between Jewish and Gentile Christians. And he thought if the Gentile Christians could show their genuine love to their Jewish Christian family, it would allay some of those fears. And so he publicised this appeal, he'd written to all the churches that he'd planted. And the Corinthians are responding to this. They want to know, well, what's this collection all about? More particularly, how are we to collect the money? What about the practical details? Now, this may seem far removed from imperishable bodies and all the, all, all the things that we've thought about, but these are the practical issues that we face living in the here and now. And while the details of the project are no longer relevant, uh, the, the fund has closed about fift, uh, 1950 years ago, uh, the principle of giving and the way in which we give remains the same. Uh, the principle is we have a responsibility to give to all people but we have a particular responsibility to those within the Christian family. Most of us presumably have done or are doing our Christmas shopping. I hope we've given to charity and some of the appeals that are are on at the present time. But I guess most of us have bought Christmas presents to those who are either our family or close to us. You don't buy presents for complete strangers. Your first responsibility, privilege really, is to those that you know and those within your family. And the special responsibility we have as Christians is to give to those who are in particular need, to give to Christians in need. By the world standards, most of us are relatively wealthy. And we have a responsibility to use our resources to help other people. And that shouldn't be onerous, it's a privilege. And when we do that, it strengthens our ties with other Christians. It's a great thing. Most of you know that Nietzsche and I were missionaries for many years and we we had this blessing of being supported by all sorts of people. One of the great things when we left missionary service and came the other way round, as it were, is that it's enabled us to give back to others. And we just love that. You know, we sit down and we think, well, what, what should we do? Who should we give to? And we plan who we're going to give to. And it's just a great blessing. There's only one saying of the Lord Jesus that's not... Included in the Gospels, outside of the Gospels. Probably you know it if you know the Bible. what it, It's recorded by the Apostle Paul in Acts 20. He said, as our Lord Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And Christians should be, should be givers. However, what Paul is saying here is, if you give, do it in a planned and systematic way. Not just an emotional response to a need. And that may occasionally be appropriate but we should give systematically and regularly. So Paul says to the Christians in Corinth, on the first day of the week, this is one of the first mentions that Christians met together, not on the Jewish Sabbath, the last day of the week, but on the first day of the week, on Sunday. And he said, when you do that, set aside a sum of money each week, collect it all, so that when I come, I won't have to make a big appeal. You'll have saved that money systematically and regularly. Can I say, if you're a Christian... Giving to the Lord's work should always be the first thing that comes out of your budget. That's your first priority. You don't shortchange the Lord. Alan Redpath in his book says, many Christians, they almost behave as though they're tipping the Lord, you know. Oh, well, that was good service. I'll I'll put a bit more in the offering. Maybe you should have the offering after the sermon. Who knows? But it shouldn't be like that. We give first to the Lord out of what He has given to us. That's our Priority. Now, there is no strict rule about how much they were to give, such as the Jewish tithe or tenth. But it, he says it should be in keeping with your income, so that those who are wealthier obviously give more than those who are poorer, according to a person's income. And while tithing or a tenth is not prescribed in the New Testament, I, I always work on the principle that if they gave a tenth under the old covenant, we should at least match that in a new and greater covenant that we live as Christians. So let me challenge you first of all. This is the practical nitty-gritty of being a Christian. How are you doing with your giving to the Lord? Do you give regularly and systematically? Or sporadically, if you think you've got a bit of cash spare left over? And we can do it a lot more easily than the first century Christians who had to gather this money. They had a problem, of course, in keeping it safe in those days. They didn't have direct debits and standing orders. If you give to the Lord's work and you have a bank account, which most of us have, then give systematically, regularly, to the Lord's work, to the church where you belong, to those particular issues and causes that the Lord, or people, that the Lord has laid on your heart. And if we feel we cannot give anything, you say, well, I, I just can't afford it, then I would seriously say to you, you need to review your lifestyle. It's a sensitive subject. Alan Redpath, in his book relates a story about this. Let me read it, I was kind of struck by it. A certain Christian once said to a friend, I'm quoting here, Our church costs too much, they're always asking for money. A friend replied, Some time ago a little boy was born in our home. He cost me a lot of money from the very beginning. He had a big appetite, he needed clothes, medicine, toys and even a puppy. Then he went to school and that cost a lot more. Later he went to college, then he began dating, that cost a small fortune but in his senior year at college he died and since the funeral he hasn't cost me a penny. Now which situation do you think I'd rather have? After a significant pause she continued, as long as this church lives it will cost. When it dies for want of support it won't cost us anything. A living church has a vital message for all the world today, therefore I'm going to give and pray with everything I have to keep the church alive. Now you may object as the Corinthians probably we're doing. Well, hang on a minute. How's it going to be used? How can we be sure that it's used well? Paul addresses that issue too. He says all giving should be administered with integrity. In fact, Paul says, when this collection is made, I'm going to personally vouchsafe for it by sending along people with accredited people, reliable people. I'll give them letters of introduction. If necessary, I will even go myself to make sure this money isn't pilfered Siphoned off, lost, whatever. Money is a great problem. Paul writing to Timothy says, the love of money is the root of all evil, 1 Timothy 6.10. And so money used in God's service should always be handled with a financial stringency that exceeds, equals if not exceeds, that used in business. So this is the first practical issue. And you may say, well, This is not very inspiring. It's not going to take me to the heights. No, but it's down to earth. It's very practical. It's a sign of how we view the future, how we live in the present. As Paul writes to Timothy in that same chapter, and I read these words, regulate funeral services, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. 1 Timothy 6, 7 and 8. You may have heard the famous story, I've quoted it before. Very rich man who died. Great crowd gathered at the funeral service. Crowd gathered around the grave as the coffin was lowered in. And afterwards one of the people sidled up and said to the minister in a quiet voice, how much did he leave? Everything, said the minister. Everything. Can't take it with you. Use it wisely in God's service. Okay, that's the first issue, using our resources. The second issue is deciding our priorities. Uh, Paul now turns to his travel plan for the next few months. Uh, At present, he's in Ephesus where he intends to stay until Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost was in late spring, so he's probably writing this in early spring. So he says, after two or three more months in Ephesus, I'm going to travel north through Macedonia, if you can see the map there, up in the north at the top, off to encourage churches like that in Philippi. And then I want to arrive in Corinth. I don't want you to just pay a flying visit, he says. I'd like to stay a few months to meet with you, to encourage you. Winter was a hazardous time for travel, so people kind of wintered in various places. And he says, then you can send me on my way. The word send you on your way there is a technical word actually. It means literally, uh, a technical word for providing food, money and travelling companions on the next leg of his missionary trip. Now, again, the details of Paul's journeys are not relevant to us. But the principles on which he makes his decisions are... See, Paul's great concern was that people should hear the gospel, the good news about Jesus especially the Gentile world to which he'd been called. His priority was proclaiming the good news about Jesus. So he says, here I am in Ephesus. What's going to determine how long I stay here? What he says, I'm going to stay here and I'm not going to leave yet, he says, because a great door for effective work has been opened for me. Verse 9. If you want to read the story of this, you need to read in the book of Acts, chapter 19. And it's a fantastic story of what happened in Ephesus. Ephesus was an occult scent of the ancient world. And the gospel of Jesus challenged the powers of darkness head on. And many people came to a living faith in Christ. There were great opportunities. This is what Luke writes in Acts 19. Many of those who believed came and openly confessed their evil deeds A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. This was actually happening when Paul was writing 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. And that's why he was reluctant to leave. God was at work, and for Paul, that was the determining factor in his plans. But at the same time, the enemy was at work. Look what he writes. Great opportunities but great opposition. Verse 9, a great door for effective work has been opened to me and there are many who oppose me. Notice the word he uses there. I checked it in the original to make sure. He doesn't say, a great door for effective work has been opened to me, but there's all this opposition. He says, no, a great door for effective work has been opened to me and there are many who oppose me. The two things always go hand in hand. Where God is at work, where people are coming to faith in Christ, where there are great opportunities, there will always be great opposition. If we are not being opposed as a church, if your witness for Christ is not being challenged, then probably it's not a very good witness by the church or you. The devil doesn't bother with dead Christians. He bothers with live Christians who are seeking to serve God effectively. Now, as we await the Lord's coming, as we look future again, after which there will be no more opportunity to share the gospel to those who have not yet heard or not yet responded, what is our priority? Our priority is to share the good news with Jesus. That should be the determining factor in how we make our decisions about our priorities. But in practice, does this consideration affect us? I've been around long enough as a pastor to talk to people. Sometimes people come to me and say, Pastor, we're thinking of moving house. There's nothing wrong with moving house. I say to them, where are you moving? You'd be surprised the number of people who find some really nice, quiet rural location with, you know, beautiful green fields and a nice big garden and everything. There's nothing wrong with that. And I say to them, well, why are you going to church? And they say, oh, we're not sure about that, but we'll check out a few places. I've, I just have to say to you, I've seen more people's lives shipwrecked by moving to the ideal home, which has separated them from effective Christian service. I say to you as a practicality the first thing you should do is say where can I serve the Lord most effectively? When you find a place look for a house it may be a nice house with a big garden there's nothing wrong with that at all but that should be a priority or what about your spare time? Are we really gospel people? Is that what determines our priorities? So these were Paul's priorities as he made his plans but notice the proviso he makes in verse 7 did you notice that little phrase? I hope to spend some time with you Corinth, if the Lord permits. One of the things you notice again over the years is how people speak in church when they're giving out the notices. We have a bulletin, you know, but in the old days, when everyone any gave out intimations, those who were older will know this, the people giving out them would always give out the notice and they would say, if the Lord permits, God willing, or even DV, which is Deo Valenti, God willing. Those were spoke Latin in this spare time. Uh, Very interesting. I know it's just a convention. But it's largely been dropped. And I think part of the reason is we forget that every plan that we make is subject to God's permission. I don't know if I'll be here next Sunday. I hope to be. If the Lord permits. You'll be there next Sunday. Who knows what will happen? Uh, That shouldn't fill us with fear for Christians. But it should be a factor. Uh, In fact, if you read the story of what happened, here's Paul telling you about all his plans. He said, I'm going to come to Corinth and I'm going to spend the winter there. I don't want to pay you a flying visit. And I'm going to stay in Ephesus for two or three months. Now, if you know the story, soon after he wrote this, you know what happened? There was a riot in Ephesus. And Paul had to leave immediately. He sent Timothy off to Corinth and he came back with such an alarming report that Paul had to pay a lightning trip to Corinth, just what he'd not planned to do, to try and sort things out. It went so pear-shaped and badly wrong that he came away in, in terrible consternation and tears and it took him over a year before he finally fulfilled the plans that he planned to make when he writes this letter. You see, things don't often work out the way we planned. Maybe, maybe this evening you've, you've had all these plans and they've just not worked out. It might be something simple like your Christmas plans. Well, who knows in God's economy what's happening there, but there are some bigger plans that we make in life. Relationships, homes, jobs. It's if the Lord permits, if you've you've laid it before the Lord, if you've committed it to Him, if your priority is to be a gospel person, then whatever happens, no matter how upsetting it may be, and these things are upsetting, it's if the Lord permits. The Lord is in control. The book of Proverbs says, In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. And that should be especially reassuring to us, especially to any of us here and wonder what on earth is happening at the present time in our lives. Now, this is the third issue. We're getting towards the end. Not there yet, but we're getting there. Here's the third thing, maintaining our relationships. Uh, David Pryor in his commentary uh, says, This chapter reveals a church that is international, but also independent church in uh, Corinth I've got a quote on there, I can read it he says, although Paul has mostly personal comments to make, the context is markedly international. At least five Roman provinces are mentioned, Galatia Judea, Macedonia Achaia and Asia. Uh, these areas reflect the very different cultures and conditions, Europeans and Eastern Jews and Arabs, Greeks and Romans, urban and rural, we see a church which has penetrated into all these situations such as the power of the Christian gospel. You take these kind of things for granted you read those funny names and think Asia it's not the continent, it's the Roman province of Asia and you need to get a map out and find out where all the places are but just think about this this has all happened in 25 years due to the work of pioneers like Paul, who have gone out and preached the gospel. The church is international. One of the great things in Edinburgh is that the, the, the world comes to Edinburgh Uh, Last night we had the uh, International Fellowship round for carol singing and a a kind of Christmas party last night. It's just great. There's about 40, 50 of us there crammed in the man's front room. And, and, you know, we went round and all the countries that different people came from, in Europe and, uh, you know, from, uh, I can't even remember all the names, and from China and from Singapore and from Russia and from Germany and, wow, it's just a wonderful thing. And all one in Christ Jesus. And the amazing thing is wherever you go in the world you'll find some Christians with whom you have a deep and personal relationship even though you've never met them before. However, the, the great danger with this is that we idealise it we say, isn't it wonderful being a Christian? The hard bit is getting on with Christians in a local church. Relating to Christians in a local church. And sometimes those relationships come under strain. They need to be maintained. Sometimes they need to be repaired. And Paul has this, this really difficult relationship with these Christians in Corinth. It's the most difficult church he has to relate to. And he touches on some of these areas. You can see these tensions if you've been with us in the series and throughout this chapter. So he says, I'm sending Timothy, my young colleague, on my behalf to address some of those in the church who are arrogantly taking authority to themselves and defying Paul's rebuke against their immoral lifestyles. You imagine sending a guy like Timothy. He was timid by nature. He was quite young. Paul is concerned how they'll react to him and how they'll treat him when he gets there. So he urges them to treat him as though he himself were present, to send him on his way in peace. Now again, the situation is specific, but the principle in particular in relationships is this. Respect those who rebuke you. I say it again, respect those who rebuke you in the Lord. Even if they're wrong, which happens to those who's in leadership, even if they're wrong, be thankful that they cared enough to say anything. And if they're right, it's worth listening. Speaking the truth, which should always be done in love, is one of the hardest responsibilities for any Christian in leadership. And responding to it graciously rather than angrily or defensively is even harder. But the outcome is not war, but peace between Christians. Otherwise, if we just fall out, we contradict what Jesus said. He said, everyone will know you're my disciples because you love one another. And when you look at the situations in some churches, it is just so dishonouring to the Lord. Paul then turns to another last now about. Did you notice that in verse 12? Now about our brother Apollos, uh, the Corinthians were very enamoured with Apollos. He was this brilliant Alexandrian Jew who was a great intellectual and there was a whole party in Corinth that thought he was a much better preacher than Paul. We are of Apollos, they said. And so the Corinthians wrote, and they didn't really want Paul to visit, they said, we'd like, a, we'd like Apollos to come and preach for us. I wonder. I asked myself as a pastor, if I'd got that kind of request, what would he have said? Uh, Many Christian leaders threatened by capable colleagues would have turned them down flat. Paul tells us, I strongly urged Apollos to go. You see, Paul had this magnanimous spirit where the gospel was concerned. We even learn from Philippians 1 he had that spirit towards those, he said, who preached Christ from wrong motives, out of envy, rivalry, selfish ambition. He concludes, What does it matter? The important thing is whether from false motives or true Christ is preached and because of this I rejoice. Now fortunately Paulus didn't fall into this category. He refused to go. Maybe he just didn't want to encourage them in their factionalism. And Paul again doesn't have some kind of apostolic authority. He'd been a a believer a lot longer than Apollos. He could have said and you find us in churches Brother Apollos the Lord has told me you are to go. He simply says he'll go when he's ready when he has opportunity. So the second principle that comes out of this in maintaining our relationships is to esteem those who lead you. And for those who are in leadership, it's very important to do that. Often in churches, we treat them like businesses. How many, you you get ministers together. You know what ministers always say when they meet one another? How's things going? Alright? What they really mean is how many people are coming to your services? Does it matter? If people are being fed God's word, does it matter whether they come to Charlotte Chapel or going to Caribba's or going to P's and G's? No, we're not building empires here, friends. We're maintaining fellowship in Christ and it doesn't really matter. This is not a business enterprise. And then in verses 15 to 18, Paul mentions a man called Stephanus and his household. He says they're the first converts or first fruits of a harvest to follow in the province of Achaia. It appears that Stephanus and these two other men, one was called Fortunatus, which means lucky, the other one was called Achaicus, which means he came from the province of Achaia, they were probably freed slaves. And they're probably the ones who brought the letter from Corinth to Paul with their questions, and they're probably going to be the ones who go back to Corinth with one Corinthians, carrying this message. And they were closely associated with Paul. And so as with Timothy, Paul was concerned about the kind of reception he would get on his return. So he reminds them, verse 15, They have devoted themselves to the service of the saints, I urge you, brothers, to submit to such as these and to everyone who joins in the work and labours at it. There's a play on words in the original, the New Revised Standard Version brings it out. They have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you to put yourselves at the service of such people. You see, Stephanus and his family were not just leaders, they were servant leaders, like the Lord Jesus whom they followed. They'd opened up their home for fellow Christians to meet in. They'd sacrificially served fellow believers in their hard work. The, the word used there, literally, is work to the point of weariness. They'd refresh Paul by their visit. And they would refresh their fellow Corinthians on their return. And Paul says, people who do that kind of work, you should honour them in the Lord... And submit to them. Submission is not a popular word in churches. But it means to recognize those who serve you and their authority in the Lord. And I use the word advisedly. The third principle in maintaining relationships is to submit to those who serve you. Leaders who work and serve on behalf of other Christians are worthy of recognition and submission. In the middle of all this, Paul throws out these challenges. In verse 13, five staccato statements. The first four are personal, to be on guard against false teaching, to stand firm in the faith, the truth of the gospel, not to lose heart, and the last summarizes all we've said about relationships. Timely reminders, verse 13. Do everything in love. Now he comes to the last few verses and we do in conclusion. Paul concludes with various greetings to Christians in Corinth from the churches in the province of Achaia, where Ephesus was situated, along with greetings from Aquila and Priscilla, this remarkable husband and wife team, who would also use their home in various cities as a meeting place for Christians. they led people like Apollos to Christ. We get these final greetings. And then he writes the last bit in his own handwriting. The tradition in those days was that you had a scribe to whom you dictated everything. We used to do that in business, but we now all use computers, and it's going out of fashion. Uh, Paul does it here as a means of authenticating his letter because it's clear if you read 1 Thessalonians for example that people were uh, forging letters supposedly from the Apostle Paul so he says, you'll recognise my handwriting, I'm writing this bit myself and then in verse 22 there's an abrupt change of tone with two words which suddenly focus on coming judgement The two words in the original are interesting words. Look what he says in verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. The word he used there is the word anathema. A curse or ban which Paul invokes on anyone who does not love the Lord. You read it and think, hang on a minute, what about 1 Corinthians 13? What about love? But Paul says, yeah, what about love? What about your love for the Lord? He's writing clearly to people who are professing Christians. And he's saying, it's not what you profess, it's whether you really love the Lord Jesus. And to us it sounds very strong, but maybe that's a reflection on how lightly we regard a lack of love for Jesus in our lives and in our church. And linked within it is a a wonderful word that goes right back to the early days of the church, an Aramaic word, the word Maranatha. You may have seen it names on businesses, Christian businesses, or, or, or even on people's houses. Uh, depending on which way you read it it either means the Lord has come or most likely come O Lord he says be careful the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again it was a great prayer of the early Christians particularly when they came under persecution it's found in the last book of the Bible at the end of Revelation 22 the Lord Jesus Christ is coming in judgment the Christians prayed come O Lord and only by grace can we stand will we be able to stand on that day which is why Paul's final wish is so appropriate the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you In verse 23. And despite all that they've inflicted on him, all the strong words we've seen that Paul has written in this letter, he still loves the Corinthians deeply. That is the mark of Christian leadership, that you love those that God has entrusted to your care and leadership. Genuine love, he says, My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. The American preacher and writer Warren Wisby comments, Paul had been stern with the Corinthian believers but he closed his letter by assuring them of his love. After all, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Proverbs 27, 6. If you've got an older version of the Bible, some of the NIV says Amen. The word Amen is probably not original. It was added later by a scribe. It's not in the earlier versions of the Bible. And it's very appropriate, therefore, Leon Morris comments, Paul's last word in this letter, the final word of 1 Corinthians is Jesus. Jesus is the first and the last. The Alpha, the Omega, the one who was there at creation, before creation. The one who will be there at the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. That is what we look forward to. The important thing is how we live now in the present as we think about these vital issues. How we use our resources. How we determine our priorities. How we relate to one another and maintain our relationships. We do it because one day Christ is coming either in judgment or a hope for each one of us in salvation. Let's pray together.